Hi, I'm Brenda Darden-Wilkerson, and welcome to another episode of Be The Way Forward. On today's episode, we're diving into venture fund investing for public good. Our guest, Sunita Groth, leads UNICEF's venture fund, where she works to identify cutting-edge technologies that can help improve the lives of children. A clear purpose is about us identifying and piloting what could be the new innovations for children. So that's definitely part of our mandate. But the second piece we see is, you know, we're a relatively small fund. We're, we're not at the size of where commercial venture capital funds are. So we have to look at, like, how can our little bit of money demonstrate something or influence something or be catalytic for someone else or how someone else is spending their money. And so what we're really trying to show is how how investing could be done differently. Sunita's work with UNICEF is a unique look into how investments can be made to improve people's lives around the globe. I learned so much during our conversation, and I hope you will too. Here it is. Well, I am so excited to welcome Sunita Grote to the show today. Welcome, Sunita. Thanks so much, Brenda, for having me. Well, I am, you know, and really admire your work. And I'm excited for our listeners to to really learn the amazing impact that you're having in all the different ways that you're having it. And so what I would really like to ask you to start out with is, could you just share a little bit about how you got to where you are right now? Like, you know, Okay, here's the silly question. When you were a little kid, did you know when I grow up, this is what I want to do? No, I didn't. Most of us didn't, right? Probably didn't even know that this is what I was going to be doing maybe 10, 11 years ago, to be fair, let alone when I was um, a little kid. So I, um, yeah, I have the the privilege of leading a team called UNICEF Ventures um, that works within UNICEF. UNICEF, for those of you who are not so familiar with it, is basically the UN's organization that um, focuses exclusively on children. So we look at reaching every child um, and making sure that their rights are being realized um, around the world. Uh, we're active in in developing and emerging markets, largely speaking, and also especially in emergencies. Um, so as we've seen on the news recently, of course, children are um, really disproportionately affected by emergencies um, around the world. And so that's a space that UNICEF is very active in as well. Um, I joined UNICEF about nine and a half years ago, almost 10 years ago now, um, and joined this incredible team, which at the time was called UNICEF Innovation. Um, and before that, I worked in uh, health, actually. So I worked uh, in sexual and reproductive health, specifically looking at uh, marginalized communities um, and worked uh, in community-led organizations and also at the global level and kind of trying to influence policy on that. So I've ended up here really just um, always motivated to try and solve what we call the wicked problems, um, and but ended up in this team because I felt that I had an opportunity to think about things differently, try and find new solutions, and maybe bring people into solving those problems that um, just attack things or tackle problems in different ways, might have different resources, might have different skills, might have different products that we could use. Um, and I really enjoy bringing people together who are sort of the unlikely pairing, you know, who may not think that they could work together to solve a problem um, in a new way. So that's sort of how I ended up here. 
So I like that. And and I just want to underscore that for a moment because, you know, we're talking to an audience that is heavily tech uh, or at least influenced by tech. What else do you, do the people who are able to really impact um, and think about children in a unique way? What else do you need to know? Because it's, it's global, right? So I'm assuming the issues are different. <laughs> you know, in different spaces, help can be received differently. How do you balance that? How do you, how do you think about that? How do you bring um, that perspective to the work? So I think what's really unique about UNICEF is that each, um, each of our country offices, so our teams that work in these 130 plus countries um, really understand what's happening on the ground. They're there to stay. They're there before a crisis hits, what during, and they stay after um, in in countries that you know are particularly vulnerable to facing crises, and they're in countries that need you know the whole range of kind of support and engagement from UNICEF. So in some cases, it's really about. Um, you know, helping those country governments understand what's sort of the the last group of kids that might still be excluded from services or that might not have access to life-saving information. And in other countries, it might be the majority of children that still, you know, need um, improved access to, to life-saving information and services. So that sort of ability to act differently in different contexts is something that I think the organization does does very well and is really led by the teams that are on the ground for us and and working working in those countries. Um, one thing that uh, my team tries to do, so we really focus on looking at how emerging technologies can support the work that UNICEF does. And that's sort of the, our team's focus. And what we try and do is with this broad range of diverse challenges and issues, what are some of the common bottlenecks that we can identify that cut across those contexts and that are kind of cut across those issues. So, you know, some of the common themes that we might see, for instance, are how real-time information and data can support better decision-making. So it can support our offices, it can support government partners and others to better understand where are the needs of children, what, what are those needs, and help us respond and adapt what we're doing more quickly to them. So that, you know, you can imagine that would help in education, it would help in health, it could help in an emergency, right? What are some of those underlying bottlenecks that they're facing? The other, another challenge might be the ability to track transparently and move quickly things from A to B. So that could be money, it could be value, it could be goods. How do we do that in an efficient way so that what we're trying to send to children and their families reaches there at, you know, in, in speed, and we know that it's reaching the right children and, and, and the communities that we want to target. Um, another one would be how do we reach children with the right kind of information and content in a way that they can consume that content. So that could be for learning, or it could be to prepare them for a particular situation. So in that sense, we need to think about all sorts of different languages. We might need to think about different levels of literacy. We might need to think about different levels of digital literacy um, or, you know, ad adjusting to different levels of, of learning ability. So those are sort of some of the common challenges. Again, we would see that in the classroom. We could see that outside the classroom. We could see it if we're trying to reach children and their families to warn them or prepare them for an emergency. And so those are sort of some of the you know underlying things that we try to focus on. And then finally, everything we do is open source. And so it means that when something generates value in one context, um, it can hopefully very easily be built into a solution for another without having to start from scratch. Um, but that value yeah. and that IP is, is openly available to everybody. I absolutely love that. 
Um, so, but in a way, you are becoming the work. Your your work is creating the infrastructure on which the local communities can do the work that they need to do and they're ready to do. You're making them prepared. So I would be interested in hearing what is the what are some of the emerging technologies that that you're finding useful in in some of these places. So our team's broadly has been focusing for the last few years on three main technology spaces. I would say one of them is around um, AI and machine learning. Um, The second one is around blockchain and cryptocurrencies. And then the third one has been around drones and kind of unmanned aerial vehicles. I would say the last one for us is the the least kind of cutting edge, the least emerging. We've been in that space for quite a while. Um, we see that, you know, those solutions have added value and are continuing to add value to some of the work that UNICEF is doing. So in that sense, I think that's an, that's an area that the rest of the organization is taking up. Um, but in the first two spaces, things are, are evolving so quickly and so rapidly that we're constantly seeing kind of new um, applications or new things that we'd like to explore um, that we are seeing value in. The other thing I would say, sometimes it's not about it being the most cutting edge. Maybe it's sometimes it's just looking at how those technologies could be applied to solve new problems. Um, and so right. I sometimes say that the hard part of what we do isn't necessarily on the technology side. It's it's about sort of applying that technology to a new problem and then actually putting it to good use in that setting, I think is often right. the, the real challenge we have. Um and less so on kind of the actual development of the of the technology itself. Sure, sure. I mean, in, and I, I like that focus because it's not about the neatest new thing. It's about what works in a situation uh, best so that those children get what they need. Uh, that's great. So UNICEF is the first, if not the only organization to invest the way they do in crypto. How does investing in an alternate digital currency reach closer to UNICEF's goals for children? So um, we, since 2019, we have been the first and so far only UN organization that's able to accept, hold, and disperse cryptocurrency. Um, What I would say is we don't invest in the cryptocurrency itself, but we use cryptocurrency just like we would use um, fiat, so regular currency, to provide funding to new solutions, in this case, startups that are developing these new sorts of solutions. And so that's what we've been able to, um, that's how we are currently using cryptocurrency. The motivation behind that was, was, you know, came from several different places. One of them was just observing. And so this is one of the roles that our team has is sort of observing what's happening in the outside world and trying to predict if and how that's going to influence UNICEF as an organization and, of course, children's lives. And so we saw cryptocurrency kind of developing and we thought this is going to be pretty big for big organizations like ours in different ways. And we also felt that it responded well to the increasing pressures that organizations like ours, and we're by far not the only one, are under to show transparently where the money is going that we receive. Um, And so, of course, running things on the blockchain and cryptocurrency in particular really allows anyone to be able to track where that value is flowing to and what it's being used for. And so that was another opportunity that we saw, you know, that we should, um, we wanted to leverage. And so we used it for 
the venture fund in particular um, to sort of accept and pilot and look at what the value would be that operating cryptocurrency could bring to the organization. And so we saw that it significantly cut down the time it took to make transactions. We were able to make transactions far more quickly. It has a, a lower transaction cost on us as an organization. Um, and it also brought in new partners to us as, a, as an organization. So we have, you know, new partners that wanted to support our work, but also help us understand what does what do digital assets mean and how could they potentially be used not just in the way that I've described to increase transparency and efficiency, but what could they ultimately bring for children? How could they be used to improve the lives of children? Um, and so we started really with this pilot under the venture fund. And after three years and of showing these sorts of results, we are now continuing to operate the crypto fund um, and looking to actually, hopefully in the coming years, expand what we're able to do with cryptocurrency. One of the spaces in which we see that it could really add value is in what we call cash assistance programming. So that's where we provide cash to children and their families to better be able to prepare and respond in the case of an emergency, for instance, or on a more ongoing basis, you know, to provide cash support. So it could be, you know, as part of social protection or other programs. Um, and there's quite a large volume of cash that gets distributed that way, uh, not just by UNICEF, but by other organizations as well. And we think that digital assets and cryptocurrency could improve the efficiency with which we're able to do that. And again, also the transparency, it could show, you know, who's really receiving that cash and is it going to the intended, you know, recipients. So that was part That's of the awesome. motivation behind engaging with cryptocurrency. That's awesome. And, and it sounds like you've well leveraged to that opportunity um, and will continue to. I mean, you're helping children around the world. And, and now with this venture fund, you are investing in organizations that are, uh, I guess, also doing helping to do the work. So, you know, for, for all the investors out there and the people who have funds, the first thing that they always want to talk about is the risk. How, how do you think about risk when you invest in, in the organizations that you do? So I would say we think about risk and we think about it very carefully, but we also uh, really focus on the opportunities that these organizations present us with. Um, so with this fund, you know, it from the beginning, there was an accepted level of risk associated with it. And we got partners to join us on this journey who understood that risk taking and innovation is part of what is going to make, I would say, contained risk and innovation is what's going to make UNICEF a better organization, be able to do things better and more quickly. And so, um, you know, I think we, the first thing I would say is we, we do this work with partners who understand um, that risk-taking can be important when it's in, done in the right way and when it's managed in the right way. And so that's really, for a big organization like ours, that's re a really important differentiator. Um, we don't, we, we have to understand which partners are open to that to that idea of experimenting and trying new things and which ones may not be. Um, I think there's, you know, the fund focuses on providing funding to companies in emerging and developing markets and also early stage companies. And so there's 
several layers of risk there, or as I would say, perceived risk. So often companies in those markets are perceived to be riskier, um, but actually it's not been our experience so far that they are riskier in the sense of um, that they might take more risks themselves or that they are in riskier environments. I think they're often more agile. They're more prepared to respond to changing circumstances because it's mm -hmm. the environments that they have been operating in and have grown right. up in. Right. Um, but can I, we, can I put can I can we underscore that point a little bit? Sure. Because you know, the really, I, I I ask this question almost as a trick question for the audience because many times investors, what they perceive to be risky, are just things that they don't understand. Yes. Um, but the people who are doing that work well understand, as you said, the environment. They understand the challenges, and they've had to even be agile to run to do that work. So. You know, that's where I would say you definitely have mitigated the risk, um, but um, it's looking at it from a very different perspective that I think is educational <laughs> for others who uh, are have the ability to invest. So please say more. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I wanted to just underscore that point. Absolutely. So I think that that happens a lot if you look at kind of traditional venture capital investing, right, is, is perception plays a big, big role. So we see that mm -hmm. not only in geography, we also see that in who does and doesn't get funded in terms of founders. So we know yes. that the numbers differ depending on what you look at, but we know that less than 10% of VC funding goes to female-founded and female-led businesses. Right. And right, that's also a perception of risk. It's not real. In fact, the data shows... right quite clearly that um, you know, female-founded and female-led businesses, or at least those led by diverse teams, often outperform male-founded and male-led businesses, um, have higher levels Absolutely. of innovation, give their investors higher levels of return. And so actually the data, you know, speaks exactly against um, that perception. Um, and so, you know, we, yeah, we emphasize really the opportunity of what we see. And I think we count, try and counter that perception of risk very concretely by being very transparent about the successes and the challenges that our companies face. Um, so we monitor not only their ability to kind of implement the particular project and the pro and develop the product that they've been funded to do, but we also um, monitor their financial performance and their, their growth metrics around the company themselves um, so that we can show that, in fact, these risk perceptions are largely not accurate. Um, that in fact, not only are these companies building solutions that are having an impact, but they're also doing so in a financially sustainable and sometimes profitable way. Um, and so what we've seen, we've been now providing funding for uh, nine years through the venture fund to, to companies in developing and emerging markets. And we're actually seeing across the portfolio that um, those companies are what we would say outperforming what we're often seeing as average indicators um, that other funds are putting out there. So we're able to see that they are, in fact, we've had a number of what would have given, would have made us a lot of money if we could have taken equity, um, but we've seen financial exits coming out of the portfolio. We're seeing that um, a large number, I think it's 40%, are profitable of the companies, even though they're at early stages um, in that portfolio as well. And so for us, it's that really being able to show that the social impact as well as the financial success can come hand in hand. And then there's the additional layer, and this also comes back to managing the question around risk, is that all of these solutions are, or these businesses are built around open source solutions. Often you hear that when something is built open source, oh, you're just giving something away, it's never going to make money. 
but actually we're we're showing that these businesses are can generate revenue and are profitable and it's also our risk mitigation strategy so for us the fact that everything we invest in is open source means that even if that company were not to survive right even if that company was not to continue the solution and the ip that yes. the company has generated remains available mm -hmm. to everybody um yeah. and so we I see that, that as kind of a value that's generated for the public good regardless of whether the company may succeed in the long term or not. And that's where we we see our role, you know, as a as the kind of organization that we're in, we don't believe that what we put our money into should remain in anybody's hands or any single person's organization's hands. It needs to be in the public domain. So as many organizations as possible can leverage um, that and build on top of it, change it, localize it, yes. turn it into something completely different. Yeah. Um, but that's part of uh, really how we are managing our risk as well. I love all, all of that, right? The fact that um, the um, solution could outlive a potential company not remaining. So that that help, all of that work, think about all the effort that went into bringing it to that point doesn't get lost uh, and, and will continue to have impact. I think that's amazing. And it, you're actually canceling a lot of myths. You're happy. You're showing that a lot of the assumptions that get made are just incorrect about who should be doing the work and who should receive funding. Can you give us an example of the type of, of uh, solution that you choose to invest in? Um, you know, what goes into those decisions? Yeah. And maybe if I can just respond with one more comment to what you were saying about canceling some of these okay. myths. I think that's really what we see one of the purposes of the fund. So, if, you know, the a clear purpose is about us identifying and piloting what could be the new innovations for children. So that's definitely part of our mandate. But the second piece we see is, you know, we're a relatively small fund. We're, we're not at the size of where commercial venture capital funds are. So we have to look at like, how can our little bit of money demonstrate something or influence something or be catalytic for someone else or how someone else is spending their money. And so what we're really trying to show is how how investing could be done differently, you know, how results could be achieved differently. And our, you know, our portfolio companies have raised, um, I think it's three and a half times or two and a half times um, as much money, two and a half times as much money thanks to our seed funding from other sources. So for us, that's a proof that, you know, we're we're trying to influence where other people are putting their money as well. Um, now, in terms awesome. of the, that in terms so awesome. of, in terms of the examples um, of different companies, so, you know, we you'll find kind of a range of different companies in the portfolio. Some of them are building solutions that children themselves might be using um, themselves. So there's, you know, there could be solutions that are being used by uh, children in education settings, for instance. So we've got a company out of Mexico um, called PixFrame, and they have kind of a game-based learning solution that's been used in Mexico and helps to personalize and gamify um, math learning, for instance. So that's something that, you know, children themselves would be interacting with directly. So they would be the main kind of user of those platforms. In other cases, we've invested in solutions where we're looking at kind of maybe making the system around children. So the services that they receive or that they interact with more effective or more efficient. So one example that I was just reading about today um, from one of my team members is called Portal Medic Telemedicina. It's out of Brazil. And they have kind of a health management platform 
that looks at how to better um, extract information for decision making from medical records and other sources of information and uses AI to detect anomalies and kind of trends in that data. And they, in a recent pilot, showed that the use of their platform can boost child vaccination rates by over 8% just within a year of using that solution. So again, it's sort of looking at how do we make the services that children use or interact with more efficient so that they can do more and reach more children. Similarly, um, there's a company out of Nepal that we've worked with, and that's worked together with our office in Nepal to pilot a platform that uses blockchain um, to make a cash and kind of voucher assistance program more efficient. So imagine like you're sending uh, vouchers or cash again to needy families that need extra assistance, maybe during particular seasons or to respond to a crisis. And here again, the idea was to improve the speed and the transparency with within with which these cash this cash assistance was going to be delivered to the families. And so again, that's not something that children themselves would be interacting with, but it's something that helps us deliver right. services more effectively um, and efficiently. And then similarly, you know, another example, even sort of maybe maybe a little bit further removed, but with significant, you know, impact on children's lives would be platforms that um, our portfolio company, Thinking Machines, they um, are out of Malaysia, have been developing for the last couple of years. They use data um, and AI to, for instance, produce what they call relative wealth maps. So it allows governments to understand where there are pockets of particular needs within you know, big air, big geographic areas, and they use different kind of data. Could be night lights, for instance, use of certain facilities, um, physical infrastructure in a particular area, and they overlay those data sets to come up with a really granular analysis of where families might have needs, socioeconomic needs that the government can respond to. When otherwise you're looking at very kind of average large scale numbers that doesn't allow that don't allow for that sort of fine. Um, you know, fine granularity of targeting particular areas for additional help um, to reach more children. So those are some of the examples of of the kinds of solutions that the fund has supported. That's awesome. You know, you mentioned one that I, I want us to dig into. You mentioned AI, and and I know the fund has recently also invested um, in AI. Uh, artificial intelligence is very timely topic for us to talk about. Um, what are the some of the biggest reasons to invest in this space or this fund? Yeah, um, you know, we see a, a range of different applications um, of AI that can kind of bring potential to to, to, to or have the potential to add value. I would say, you know, maybe I can focus on kind of two or three of them because I think that the potential and the potential opportunities are huge. But some of the things that our team is pursuing, one of them is um, what I mentioned earlier around what Thinking Machines is doing. So really looking at large scale data sets um, and being able to increase the speed, the granularity, the accuracy of the insights that we can gain from that to inform um, planning and program delivery. Um, and so that's something that, you know, it could be imagery, it could be other large data sets that when they're combined, suddenly are giving us insights that 
otherwise would take years or a lot of money to be able yes. to collect. Um, and in some cases, maybe from areas that physically wouldn't be as easily reachable for our colleagues as well. And so that's um, gain gaining that insight from from data sets in a new way is, is really powerful for an organization like ours. Um, the second space that we're looking at is around accessibility of information and content and being able to automate some of those processes. So here you could think again about languages, for instance, we've just started building out a platform that's helping our colleagues translate um, information during emergencies very, very quickly um, and into languages that, you know, are not usually as well represented in some of the commercial automated translation platforms that you might use, um, for instance, right, into the common languages mm -hmm. like Spanish mm -hmm. or French. Um, but we're suddenly right. looking at like very local languages that might only be spoken in countries that often, you know, whose needs are often not represented when we're looking at kind of the large commercial platforms that are leveraging this, the technology for similar purposes. Um, and so those are kind of two of the areas that I would say are, are front and center for us in terms of um, what we're exploring. Finally, another one would be kind of linked to that is around personalizing learning engagement, for instance. How do we make sure that when children are learning, particularly online, have access to digital tools? How can we make sure that they are you know, going on on a journey that's tailored to their particular needs. It could be around um, particular learning gaps that they might be facing, or a particular style of learning. Um, and so, how do we? How can we leverage AI to you know to really tailor that? I think in in all three cases, you'll see that those technologies, those applications, are nothing particularly new. Um, but what we're seeing is that they haven't necessarily been designed for the context. Yes. Um, and based on the kind of data sets that would make them very relevant and suitable for the needs that we see. Um, so making sure that yeah, those data sets I... are representative, that they are as diverse as they need to be, that they come from the kind of environments that we operate in is um, where we see that, you know, we, ha we can add value to those conversations and to developing those platforms. Yeah, the, the application of the technology is what really stands out here, is the picking the technology for the need. Um, and, you know, all of the, the variety of things that you shared feel very personal to the child. And, and I like that, too. I think that's really, really stands out. So the fund also launched the Smart Investing Initiative. And for those who don't know what that is and how how it helps push the UNICEF's goals forward, can you share a little more about that? Sure. So this takes us back actually quite a few years. Um, we set ourselves the goal as the fund to have a balanced portfolio. We wanted to have 50% uh, of our portfolio be female-led and female-founded companies. And so that's the target we set ourselves. Um, and that's where the smart investing initiative sort of came from. We went through quite a deliberate and I think I would say thoughtful process of trying to understand why it wasn't balanced. And I would say we were still doing relatively well. I think at that time when we started, we were probably about 30% female founded and female led, something like that. Which, you know, is still way above industry average if we take VC investing as, as the industry to compare ourselves to, but we didn't feel that that was good enough. 
Um, and so we looked right. at <laughs> our investing processes. We sort of said, okay, what are we doing? Are we not sourcing from the right places? Um, do we have some sort of bias built into our criteria? Are we looking at the right things? Um, do we have personal bias? The, the team that's assessing these applications, you know, are we are we bringing personal bias to the to to our to our own deliberations? How we're doing the demos. Um, and then, so we started really tracking the data to see, was there a particular stage where female-founded and female-led companies were maybe dropping off in percentage and proportion throughout the process? Um, and, you know, we actually saw that there wasn't any significant point where there was sort of a drop-off, but we we reviewed kind of what others were doing, and we're trying to see what are some of the practices that have been shown to add value. So we saw things like just putting an explicit mention of female-led and female-founded companies are particularly welcome to apply or something along those lines has been shown in job applications, for instance, or job ad ads to really encourage women to apply to particular jobs. So we made some of those changes. Um, and we also learned some of the things that didn't work. So we had designed... Um, a masterclass series where we looked at sort of leaders in the space from venture capital, accelerators, et cetera, to do masterclasses um, online. And we actually didn't find that we sort of saw the response rate that we wanted um, in attendance or that it was converting to more applications to our fund. And instead, we switched on prof to profiling our own female founders in our portfolio because what we were hearing is that the people we had chosen for our masterclasses were maybe not the most relatable for the sorts of audience mm -hmm. that we were hoping was going to be applying mm -hmm. to the fund. And so I believe we're now maybe at 44 or 45%, something like that. Um, and Amazing. we, but we have to really hold ourselves to that. So we have very clear indicators in our assessment um, process that holds us to looking at team diversity as a, as an important factor uh, in, in how we assess companies. I think that's great. I mean, 45%, um, we don't reach 45% um, in when we talk about equity and across most segments. When we talk about tech, when we talk about founders, when we talk about who gets funded, all of that uh, is challenging. And so really congratulations for setting that standard and, you know, beating your own numbers. And, and it's it's very meaningful. And I, I'm hoping that... Um, from this conversation, more people will take a look at your strategies and see that they can't be done. Because I think at some point people will believe, well, this is just the way it is. Uh, and you're showing us that it's not, that it can be so much better. So thank you for that effort. Um, well, I want to switch a little bit and talk more about you for a moment, because, you know, you are doing amazing things. You're leading this fund. You're making these decisions. And there's so much that, that you're sharing that goes into it. It's such a thoughtful um, data-driven, uh, collaborative effort. So how did your, your career lead you to this? Because I know before you, you started with UNICEF, you said you worked in HIV and health response for 10 years. What did you learn through that advocacy for this work? That's a very good question. Um, I think, I think a few things. So what, what all of this work has in common is sort of um, the fact that I am like fundamentally driven to want to solve 
problems, right? Or sort of address some of the really big challenges that I feel that society is facing. I have sort of this fire in my belly about injustice. Um, one of my dear friends. It's obvious, um, by the way. Dear friend, dear friends who unfortunately isn't with us anymore, but at one point described me as spectacularly angry. Um, and not, you know, constantly, but sort of said, I used to share an office with him. He, you know, he said there are moments when this, that's anger just kind of clearly is sort of driving what I do. So I think that that's been the red and common thread through, you know, no matter where I've sort of chosen to apply that. The HIV movement is very, um, has some very particular things to it. it. An incredibly powerful civil society movement, I think is, is you know, one thing that most people would point out um, who've worked in that space. Um, a lot of the big, big wins when it comes to where we are now when it comes to HIV and AIDS have come through advocacy and, and activism from affected communities and from marginalized communities. Um, and so, you know, that was an incredible thing to be part of and to, to see and to be able to support through the work that I do. So I think that, you know, that sort of activism, that everything that you do can needs to influence the bigger picture and can and does have the power to influence the bigger picture is something that I, that that's something I really took away from that work. Um, is that like you can, you know, do a program or support a particular project, but it's it's if you can take that experience and trying to influence others, then, you know, the knock on effect of that, of course, is going to be is going to be much bigger. Um, I think that also it also really taught me um, to focus on kind of the equity and marginalization issue. Um, you know, if we look at HIV and we look at who's the most affected, um it often does not have only to do with lack of access to information. It has to do with lack of agency, right, and power and um, in lack of choice to be able to influence your own, the course of your own life or the decisions and some critical moments in your life. And so I think, again, that sort of idea that when we look at technology, we don't want that to reinforce those sorts of power dynamics. Ideally, we want technology to change those power dynamics. But that also often how technology is designed, how it's deployed, who owns it, who's taking it into certain markets is just bringing those power dynamics with them. And so we need yeah. to kind of make sure that we shift them. So how we do things when it comes to technology and innovation, to me, is as important as the what we do. Um, there's not really... There's, it's not really okay to compromise on the how um, for the sake of the next big technology solution. That's not really going to get us to changing some of those fundamental um, imbalances that we're seeing and injustices that we're seeing. So th those are some of the things that I think I took with me from that time. But on the other hand, I also felt that at least in my kind of direct surroundings and the people that I was working with, I felt like we were all approaching problems in the same way. We were all sort of professionally trained in a similar way. Um, and so if you put us in the room and presented us with a problem, we'd all kind of come up with the same solution. It's very hard to think outside the box. And so um, the motivation for me to switch gears a little bit came from that realization that I sort of thought there has to be more to being able to solve some of these problems that just haven't moved. We haven't made any progress on them in years. How do we get people in the room who think about things differently? How can I think about things differently? How can I approach problems differently? Um, and I decided to actually do an MBA and then um, to surround myself with business-minded people who were not really part of my professional um, environment until then. 
And then out of that came an interest, particularly in innovative financing and looking how to use, you know, private capital um, towards good and how could it be leveraged. Um, and then I joined shortly after I joined um, UNICEF Innovation. And that sort of, for me, was a place where I was able to bring these different people together and try and approach big, big problems um, in new ways. And so that's how I that's how I ended up here. So much there, <laughs> so much there. We could we could spend hours on just what you shared when you talked about the how being as important as what it is that we're doing. Um, when you think about uh, having people approaching problems from a different perspective, and that we're not all in the same room, not nodding our heads and getting to that one solution when there's so many. Um, we just finished doing some research within our organization around the needs of the women in our community. And one of the, the summaries of one of our researchers was one size fits none. And what that meant was, you know, we come up, there's always this race to scale, right? Um, and many times that means find that one solution and push it when there's so many people who just don't get served in that way. Um, I, I, f I felt all that fire. <laughs> I, I felt all the fire coming from you in, in terms of that desire to really serve, but serve in the right way. Um, and being able to shift, and, I, and that that's the encouragement I want our listeners to get, to be able to shift once you understood what really drove you and what you wanted to do is really important. Many times people feel like they can't shift, but you did, right? You shifted. Um, I also want to make, um, uh, underscore that point about power. So much and so many of our solutions are based on who has the power. But now your work is supporting the most powerless people on the planet, which are children. So yeah, I, I'd I love think, to hear you say more about that. Yeah, I think um, I think power dynamics are are really uh, yeah. If we don't look at power dynamics when it comes to each of these things, then we're sort of missing out on on our fundamental understanding of a problem, but also potentially the solutions for that problem. Um, but just maybe to bring it back to specifically the work that, you know, we're doing, we one of the pieces around power and technology is if we look at some of these markets that UNICEF operates in, so developing and emerging markets, we see that a lot of the technology solutions that governments or others are using are coming from outside of the country. And the value that that technology solution by deploying it, by using it, gets captured outside of the country and by potentially very big um, private and other players. Mm -hmm. And there mm -hmm. isn't as much value generated and captured for the local economy, for instance. And so one of the pieces that we talk about a lot when it comes to open source solutions um, is and what we call digital public goods, which is now sort of an international term or a glo more globally accepted term for these open source technology solutions um, is the role that they can play for empowering local communities, local economies um, around things like data ownership, around involvement in actually the digital economy and what it can present, the kind of job creation role that it can play because you're developing solutions, you're maintaining them over time. Um, and so really allowing for those local ecosystems to have that role 
can play a really important role in shifting some of those power dynamics as well. So for us, that's um, that's a really big part of also kind of what we're trying to do from an advocacy point of view is talk a lot about the importance of which solutions you select, you know, how they're designed, how you use them, how you maintain them, who's involved and who has control and ownership over them is really important in the long term as well for power dynamics between countries, between countries mm -hmm. and you know, companies, um, between people within a country, between governments and their people. And so those are, you know, those are all decisions that have potentially uh, longer term consequences in in whether and how they're able to shift power dynamics. Now, let's not be overly naive. Of course, each of those players has their own reasons to why they may or may not want to shift power dynamics. So, you know, that's something to kind of bear in mind when we talk about all of this. But we try to you know, really at least present the options um, that are available uh, to from from among technologies in such a way that they can, um, you know, empower communities to be more part of the, the digital economy and what it has to offer. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, many times the and you mentioned it specifically in connection with crypto, but I feel like it's probably technology in general. There's this imbalance in um, the speed at which technology changes or the opportunities for some of those players to interject their technologies, as you were just sharing, into solutions that, you know, are sort of like outside of their area, uh, initial area of influence and in the way uh, your organization has to work and our organization many times has to work. Um, what is the, the when you formed the fund, how much of that went into your thinking about, you know, how you could make a change, how you could maybe speed some things up or slow some things down or just really change the dynamics around who got to create the solutions? And, and what has been you know, what have you found to be the results of that? You know, you thought you had some initial thinking. You're saying the fund's been around for a while. You know, talk about how it's it's been what you expected or is it more than you expected? Really, how do you feel about um, the results so far? Yeah, so, um, you know, I co-founded the fund with um, my co-lead at that time and uh, we, yeah, we made some of those decisions very deliberately at the beginning. I think we both understood or or agreed that our role was to demonstrate have a demonstrative effect with what we do with the fund. It was to, it was there to influence? It was there to shape? It was there to hopefully bend industry maybe towards saying, oh, it could be done in a different way. Um, and the one thing I would say is that it's definitely not the easy way. Um, it's definitely been harder and we've been challenged and we've been challenged not just externally, we've been challenged internally as well. Um, because I think, you know, we've said no to, we've had to, that means you say no to things and it means that you have to sometimes like really justify why you're taking the harder and the longer road. Um, again, you know, and sometimes the argument is, yeah, but there is this solution already and it could reach children tomorrow as opposed to, mm, you keep, you know, talking about open source and like, that's going to take, but it's, and it's going to take longer to get to the solution long term. So we're balancing those decisions all the time. Um, and it's not always easy to emphasize the long term gain, right? And the long term value over what could be seen as immediate success. And when you're talking about social issues and people's lives, 
those are real trade-offs to kind of think about. It's not always as clear-cut as the long-term value, you know, is more important than the short-term. So just to say, like, I think it's not, it's not been the easy route to take um, at all times. Um, how have we, how have we done? So I think um, I actually took the time, I think last year it was to look a bit at our data and compare it to, we, we issued a blog when we announced the fund. Um, and I kind of reread that and look at, looked at where we're at now and sort of, you know, did a bit of like a mental comparison and thought, mm, yeah, I think we've, we've stuck to our guns. Like we definitely <laughs> stuck to kind of implementing the model throughout those years. Um, and I think the data showed that we've, we were right on, on, on a few things at least. Um, so this idea that these companies that we selected could be financially successful while also developing and implementing and deploying solutions that were giving social impact and social benefit, that's definitely come true. I think we, we're seeing that reflected in the data of the fund. The other thing we're seeing reflected in the data of the fund is that open source solutions or digital public goods can generate revenue and can be sold and that those companies can get investment or be acquired. So again, that was something that we were being challenged on a lot. We were sort of saying, oh, by making these companies open source their product, you're basically making them give away their secret sauce. And actually what we're seeing is that that's not the case at all. They are able to make revenue. They are sustainable companies. Um, and in some, I would argue in some cases, they've been forced to look at their business model in new ways because they can't rely on their product right. being the thing that defines them. And I think we have to accept that, you know, products can be copied. Um, but like the way that you design your business model and you generate and capture value in other ways that maybe relies on the particular mix of your team, on the skill set, on your networks. That's how you increase the value of your company over time and more sustainably. And so that's been another piece that, you know, we've definitely seen come true. The challenge to that model hasn't stopped and we're constantly being asked to kind of really confirm and and demonstrate that yeah. this is the case. But, you know, I think that's um, that's also uh, come true. I think the, the the focus on diversity and the focus on the markets that we select companies from, again, we haven't seen that, you know, they're performing any less well or are any weaker or any, you know, riskier than companies that, you know, we've seen in other markets. So I would, you know, and, and or that their technology is less cutting edge. Um, all of these things were arguments that have been, you know, we've been questioned on. I don't think that's the case at all. We have actually seen that, um, I think it's over 35 of the solutions um, in our portfolio have have scaled to new markets, um, in some cases wow. to 10 or more new markets. Um, and so, you know, again, we're seeing that that, that performance awesome. is, is, is sort of <laughs> confirmed. Um, yeah, so those are those are some of the things where I think we've we've seen our model confirmed. There are things that we've learned along the way too, where you know at the beginning we didn't do things right. I think we were not focused enough at the beginning. We sort of looked for every and all technology solutions that we thought could um, bring value to children. We learned very quickly that that wasn't good for our model in terms of how best to support them. So we became very focused when we we put out calls for applications. When we put out calls for companies, we're far more focused in what we're looking for. We're far more tied to um, UNICEF as an organization and kind of the problems that are surfacing. So we've we've made that tie in more closely. Um, so those are some of the things, you know, that we've learned that we've mm -hmm. learned over time. We've also learned that 
these companies face funding gaps after they finish with us. And so we actually expanded what we do to include a second round of funding to a subset of companies that are particularly successful. Because again, our idea was that we help position them for funding and investment from other sources so that our fund becomes catalytic. It's not the idea was never to be able to sustain these companies financially. Um, in the long term. So those are some of the, the things where I think looking back, um, you know, our model showed showed some value. And and lastly, which is, you know, we, we very deliberately had the fund inside of UNICEF. We could have, you know, spun something out, done a commercial fund outside of UNICEF. But the idea was that we wanted to work within this organization that has this incredible reach, um, incredible mm-hmm. scale, and is actually a market shaper in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, that was really important for us because we wanted also for UNICEF to gain from these tools, to be able to engage with startups in new ways, um, look at how to use IP and open source IP in new ways. And so that's always been very interesting because we're trying to move, you know, with a big organization. Um, but we've seen, you know, incredible demand from our country colleagues for these these sorts of solutions interest, um, motivation to do things in new ways. And so um, that's been uh, another kind of more internal value that we've seen that the fund has been able to achieve. Well, Sunita, I could talk to you all day and would um, if you'd allow me to, but I, I got three more things I just want you to share because I mean, me. your, your, your heart, your business acumen, I mean, that's, that's another thing that I, I'm so excited about. Uh, many times people think, oh, those of us in nonprofit, we're not really business people. You are a businesswoman par excellence. And you're, the decisions that you make every day, uh, the models that you've created, the success that you've had is above and beyond what any anybody else could say that they could do. So hats off to you. I'm so grateful uh, and grateful for all of the, the children and the spaces that you are having a positive impact on. This, you know, the name of our show is Be The Way Forward. And so we always want to ask our guests to give some advice on how people listening can participate. We don't want just people who are, you know, watching great people do great things. We want to encourage them to be in their spaces all they can be. So what kind of advice would you give people to, uh, to if they're thinking about trying to do the types of things that you're doing? I think it, it really sort of depends on where they're active and where their space is. One thing that I have taken away from my own experience and from kind of seeing other people succeed is that um, finding what you're really good at is key. Like, don't try and be something, don't try and be good at everything, right? It's sort of finding the one thing. Who who are you in a room of people? Are you the one who drives forward the conversation? Who's, are you the one that brings people to a consensus? Are you the project manager? Are you the the builder? Like, you know, who, who are you? It's kind of really understand what you're good at and, and focus on that. And then I think very specifically when it comes to how to participate and engage with us, um, you know, I think we would have kind of an opening for different people who are coming to wanting to contribute to solving these problems in different ways. Um, as entrepreneurs, you know, I would say, like, think, if you can, think to apply your ingenuity or creativity to tackle some of these big problems that we know children in their communities are facing around the world. Um, there's still so many unsolved 
problems and so many opportunities in that space, not just to have impact, but also, you know, to build a successful business. And so maybe instead of, you know, looking at how to build the newest app to find a parking spot or to book a restaurant table, you know, like use your, use the skills that you were given and that you have, you know, to sort of try and solve some of those, some of those big problems. And then I would say if you if you can make the, your solution and your platform as accessible to people as you possibly can, I think that's another that's another key to how you know you can contribute to the bigger ecosystem, the bigger environment of of shifting some of those things. I think for those people who have money and who are looking to contribute to solving these issues in new ways, um, of course we're always looking for new partners to join us specifically um, on the venture fund and and more broadly at UNICEF. I think we're grateful for any contribution and engagement. It could be financial or it could be through your skills, through your networks. Um, that's something that we're always looking to looking to build up. And again, I would just look at like what are uh, perceptions and what is real in terms of where you know you choose to put your money. Um, and and actually question some of those assumptions that you know, they motivate us in many, many different ways or underpin how we behave in many different ways. But when it determines where people put their money and put their investment, it has a real consequence. And so we'll just say kind of looking at those critically um, and making sure that we are diversifying things and maybe looking at the unlikely people and the unlikely places that are not so well represented yes, yes. is where, you know, even even small contributions can go much further because we're sort of filling a gap that um, that's been created over a long period of time. So true. I underscore that. OK. And then the last question is, how can people find out more about your work, support you, get engaged with you? They definitely got to be able to find you. So can you share? Sure. So um, the Venture Fund has a website called unicefventurefund.org where you can look up any any of our work, including the work that we're doing um, in crypto. More broadly, um, there's, of course, the UNICEF websites and UNICEF social channels, which I would uh, encourage you to look at. And in most countries, UNICEF has a kind of local representation. So either through our country offices or through um, organizations that work with us to engage um, communities in kind of activism around children and advocacy and are forming partnerships. And so um, every country has a particular local representation that's always looking for more partners to engage in UNICEF's work in general. So those are sort of two places that I would start um, to follow also on social media. Well, thank you to Sunita Grote. I have learned so much. I have great admiration for your work. I know our listeners learn so much. Thank you for your work. Um, I'm going to probably be reaching out for part two because we just barely scratched the surface. But in the meantime, please be well. And thank you so much again for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was great fun. Thanks again to Sunita Grote for a fantastic discussion on today's episode. Now, if you enjoyed our conversation, then please follow Be The Way Forward wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can also watch video episodes of this podcast on the AnitaB.org channel on YouTube. For more on how you can be the way forward, head on over to AnitaB.org. Be The Way Forward is produced by Dominique Ferrari and Paige Heimsen. 
Sound design and editing by Neil Ines and Ryan Hammond. Mixing and mastering by Julian Kwasniewski. Associate producer is Faith Krogalecki. Executive produced by Dominique Ferrari, Stacy Book, and Avi Glajanski for Riveter Studios and Frequency Machine. Hosted and executive produced by me, Brenda Darden-Wilkerson for AnitaB.org. Podcast marketing from Lauren Hassell and Ariel Nissenblatt with Riveter Studios and Tink Media in partnership with Carolyn Sneller and Coley Boucher at AnitaB.org. For more ways to be the way forward, visit AnitaB.org. <laughs>